Aloha is a traditional Hawaiian greeting, but to the people of Hawaii, it's more than that. It's heart and soul. It's a spirit of kindness and a movement baked into the belief that kindness is the way. I flew in wondering if it really would be that way. Gazing out towards the horizon, the deep blues melted into black obsidian, but as my Hawaiian Airlines flight touched down, I thought very little about the landscape. Sure, it was nice to visit such a beautiful place and see some of the same spaces my parents had honeymooned almost 40 years previous, but as always, the landscape was just a small part of the story. In the almost decade I've been committed to this project, it's never been about the destination. Who was the person I was going to meet? Who is Tulsi Gabbard? I'm not sure what to say other than Tulsi is Tulsi. I flew to Hawaii twice because at the heart of this endeavor is pure passion for embracing every opportunity to know the spirit of the warfighter. And when an opportunity extends itself to know someone better, I never hesitate. But what about the politician? I didn't know, and frankly, I didn't care. She didn't want to talk about politics, and my heart knew that was the right decision. You see, this project is about humanity. It's about giving the veteran a form to speak on life as they see it. It's the opportunity to break bread and share space with the people I'm proud to call brothers and sisters. There was never a moment in my time with Tulsi where I didn't feel she was someone I'd already known. That familiarity is an expression of aloha. We hung out, hiked, rucked, laughed. I watched her husband work on home projects, and we surfed. Falling off a board is still surfing, right? But at the heart of all that, one of my favorite things about Tulsi was found in the moments of silence. There's a unique ferocity contained in her character that surely lends itself to those Samoan roots. This was evidenced on our 50-mile ruck across the island. I'm at mile 10 on our 50-mile ruck, and much to my chagrin, I'm realizing my body simply won't let me finish. As much as I'm a glutton for well-placed pain, I've become increasingly aware I just don't have the gear of some of my cohorts. I believe the old adage is, know thyself. We hit an asphalt incline somewhere along the pre-planned route that extends for roughly a mile, and my legs simply won't propel me forward anymore. My quads are screaming obscenely, and I've seemingly become one giant cramp. The temperature isn't an issue, but the humidity and my lack of preparedness has killed my opportunity to finish. I would pick up again at various intervals because, well, pride, I guess. But I'm not there to compete. I'm there to take part in something greater than myself with the people I love as family. They are my community, and I'm privileged to stand shoulder to shoulder with them in remembering the fallen. The residual pain I felt in following days from bloodied souls and badly chafed thighs paled in comparison to the pride I felt as we finished at Pearl Harbor on the 80th anniversary as the sun rose over the sleepy lagoon. That same horizon had witnessed one of the most brutal surprise attacks in world history. My pain was nothing. But I digress. Back to the matter at hand. 
What began with a warm embrace soon turned into head down and eyes to the front, Tulsi. Hell, I admire that. As her pace quickened, it became evident to me that the rank she carried was earned. Blood, sweat, and tears. You see, leadership is expressed in many forms, and there is no reg book or training manual that teaches that. It's built and bred foundationally. She has that. Somewhere along the way, I fell out, but Tulsi was still moving. That fire would not be extinguished. I don't remember the exact mile marker, but as Kala gave way to headlamps and reflective belts, something transpired. She began to fall back in the pack. I remember distinctly that anyone checking on her condition was met with that same smirk. You see, I've been observing human behavior closely in this community for almost a decade. I knew that smirk. Nothing about it was arrogant or rude, but the meaning was explicit. You'd have to hit her with a Mack truck to take her out of the running. And not only did she finish, she came in smiling near the front of the pack. Keep in mind this was an 18-hour, 50-mile beatdown with very little time for breaks put on by former Green Beret Chad Conley's nonprofit, 50 for the Fallen. I watched high-level athletes fall out 20 miles prior. So, you want to know Tulsi Gabbard? That's Tulsi. The Veterans Project is a comprehensive essay capturing the legacies of our warfighters, caregivers, and civilians who have stepped forward in defense of our patriotic principles in an effort to capture their stories and to never forget the staggering sacrifices of our nation's finest. This is the Veterans Project Podcast, where our legacies are the mission. Here's your host, Tim Kay. Welcome to the Veterans Project Podcast. My name is Tim, and I will be your host as always with me. Very special guest. We came out to Hawaii for this one. Yes. <laughs> I know it was a big sacrifice, but your selflessness is to be lauded. You know, most people say that so <laughs> <laughs> i know you get all the time just just let it roll off your shoulders yeah. it's all right <laughs> hearing it from tulsi gabbard is much better way to hear it though i enjoy that a lot <laughs> i noted your pause as you yeah. soaked it in <laughs> <laughs> truly reveling in uh, my own selflessness <laughs> it's Tul been great to have you out here though tim um, oh thank you so much for having me it's been a real privilege uh i've really enjoyed the time and you know, every photographic experience is a different one, mm -hmm. but getting to come to a place where obviously you are, you know, this is home for you, and we wanted to do it this way. We didn't want to do it in North Carolina, even though that would have been an interesting experience. Doing it here in this space is really special, so yeah. thanks for having us, uh, and we're in your beautiful stu studio home space. It is. We, we, we decided to toss out the living room. Mm -hmm. Uh, and turn it into a studio, a, a multifaceted, multi-purpose studio. And I remember telling somebody this, like, yeah, you know, like, I don't invite people to our home because we don't have a living room. Like, there's no space to host people. Like, hey, let's go sit in the backyard. Right. And uh, I don't remember who I told this to, but they're like, hey, life is too short to waste time sitting on your couch in the living room anyway. So, yeah, yeah. and that made a lot of sense to me. Well, now I think you're set up perfectly yeah. for uh, all the... Fox News appearances you're doing now, <laughs> the incredible things you're doing on television, and uh, the incredible things you're doing in life. 
you know, and when people think about Tulsi Gabbard, they think about non-bias, non-partisan, uh, the way that you come across is a way that the American people can understand. Where did where did that come from? You know, you grew up. Uh, did you grow up with dreams of this, with dreams of Absolutely what you're doing, not. being a spokeswoman for Hawaii? <laughs> did you did you see that, or no. or how did you grow no. up? And, and not in the least. Um, first of all, the the other reason why I'm glad that you came out here, um, and you were able to actually spend some time here is because. Um, you got a glimpse into what is special about Hawaii. Yes, it's, you know, beautiful mountains and beaches and sunrises and all of these, you know, postcard moments. But um, I think you caught a glimpse of the Aloha spirit, which really is what makes this place uh, so special. Um, and that that Aloha, uh, for those who don't know what it means, we all, you know, we, we start the conversation with Aloha. We generally, instead of saying goodbye, you say Aloha. And the reason for that is because of what this word actually means at, at its most deep uh, level. Uh, Alo means to share and Ha represents um, our soul, our spirit, the eternal breath that gives us life. Mm. And so in the native Hawaiian greeting uh, of aloha, generally the, the, you know, if you look at the elders and native Hawaiian practitioners, when they greet each other, they will not only greet each other with the verbal aloha, but physically you hold each other's shoulders, uh, close your eyes, touch your forehead, touch your nose, and just breathe, take a breath together and actually physically share that breath. And what that really means is, uh, it's a reminder that we are all connected. We are all children of God. We are all family in that sense. And so regardless of race or religion or social status or, uh, you know, gender, like all these other labels that increasingly, especially in today's society, are used to tear us apart or differentiate us rather than remind us of intrinsically the spirit um, that that binds us all together. Aloha allows us to have those conversations uh, in that way. And so for me, growing up here, um, living aloha, I mean, it really is a way of life. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's thinking about, um, you know, as you look at, I, I grew up, my, my, my first swimming lesson was at Ala Moana Beach Park, you know, as, as a kid. And so growing up around the ocean, growing up running around these mountains, um, you know, I, I grew up with a really sincere appreciation for um, the life and the land around me and um, a sense of responsibility, which in Hawaii is called kuleana, a sense of duty to not live for myself, but to um, live in service to God, live in service to others uh, and protect uh, Mother Earth, protect this planet. Mm, that's beautiful. What about that upbringing, what do you remember about your parents and kind of what led your path towards the United States Army? I mean, obviously, that's selfless. That's a very selfless decision. And by the way, I tried your greeting with a few people, mm -hmm. and it didn't work. But I think there were two wrists, so. <laughs> okay, there you go. <laughs> Just grabbed them by the shoulders and breathed into their face. <laughs> people yeah, are a little you, bit more afraid of that you nowadays. Kinda, you kind of, yeah. In, in the post-COVID era. Yeah, yeah. It was there's like, a little what are you doing, you weirdo? <laughs> also, you know, not good to just grab someone yeah, off the street. And, totally. Yeah, I know. And I'm admitting to this. This is not good. Are. I'm in trouble. I'm definitely getting canceled. Good thing you're leaving tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. 
She's like, get out of here. <laughs> um, but yeah, what what led your path? I mean, to the really, Army? really for. Um, I guess I guess to to start at kind of the foundational level, um, I just I grew up with um, experiencing and appreciating that I was happiest when I was doing things for others rather than just living for myself. And whether it was simple things as a kid, you know, out surfing and catching an awesome wave and getting all the stoke from that, and then experiencing the stoke that comes from helping, you know, a friend of mine uh, catch her first wave, and how in some ways that was like even more awesome than if I had caught the wave myself. Um, so experiencing that from a young age, uh, that fulfillment and that um, really that that deep happiness that comes from not living for yourself, but but being of service to others is what, I mean, it is my foundation. Uh, it has been what has guided the decisions I've made in my life about which direction to go. And it continues to be um, my source of inspiration and motivation for doing doing everything that I do. And so you know, you asked, did I envision myself as a kid, you know, being a spokesperson, being in TV or running for office? No, 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 on all fronts. Um, I'm an introvert by which, nature. Which is crazy to even think about. I can I can see it now, but before, like thinking of you as an introvert is a lot. It's, yeah. Um, my I'm the fourth of five kids, three older brothers and younger sister. And uh, my sister is like, the book definition of an extrovert. I'm the book definition of an introvert at both extremes. And I was totally cool with like, I, I, I had no problems with the fact that I didn't like talking to people in general. <laughs> I just made my sister go out and do it for me. <laughs> um, we're, we're about two years apart. And so we were locked at the hip growing up. Um, so, so for my family and really my like group of friends, the people I grew up with, for anyone to say, oh, Tulsi, you're going to be the one who's going to go run for president one day, I would have laughed my ass off <laughs> at, at, at even the concept. So it wasn't that I even thought about these things and, and somehow thought, well, I can't do that. Like they didn't even enter my, my consciousness. Um, it, there, there was no interest there, but what it, the thing that, that drove me to first run for office, I was 21 years old here in Hawaii I had been going to community college, ended up taking a break from that and ran for state house. And a lot of people, a lot of my friends uh, told me I was crazy for even doing that. Uh, at certain junctures along the way, I definitely thought I was crazy for doing it. <laughs> um, I don't think I fully realized like, hey, okay, you want to, I wanted to run for office in order to, um, I, I, I saw a lot of people in our state legislature who were completely out of touch with the needs of our community and who were more interested in kind of having this cushy post-retirement part-time gig as a state legislator and the attention that goes with it than they were about actually going out in the community, listening to what are the problems and challenges, how do we tackle it? So I thought, you know what, I can try to do something about this. And, and a lot of it was driven around my passion for protecting the environment. Um, I didn't fully realize at that time, like, hey, this is going to require you to go and knock on thousands of doors talk to thousands of strangers, give speeches, which I'd never done before, uh, do interviews with the media, which I'd never done before. I had no training whatsoever. I had no backing. I had like, no one came to me like, Tulsi, we think you should run for office. 
didn't happen. <laughs> it was the exact opposite of that. And, um, but I kept, you know, as I worked through those personal anxieties and challenges, I just kept going back to, uh, my purpose and my motivation was to, to serve God and to serve others. And, and that's where I, I drew the strength to be able to persevere and navigate my way through that ultimately ended up winning that race. And, and that is, um, that continues to be that source of strength, um, and guidance for me. That's interesting. You know, I, <clears throat> I think about the advent of this work and this project that we're doing now that, that I'm working on with my team. And I always use the term we, because I never want it to be about I, and I don't think it's about I, I think somebody could do this, you know, an, another veteran could do this as well. Uh, but in this space, it's very interesting to me because none of this came off the idea that I wanted to be, you know, the one telling veteran stories from Iraq and Afghanistan, and extending into World War II and Korea and Vietnam. It was always just the purity of the purpose of sharing the story. Legacy, right? Legacy yeah. is such a term, such a strong term. Uh, that term legacy kind of defines us, you know, where we're headed what we're doing in our post life, right? And what you're doing now and still being in the army, mm -hmm. still building on that legacy. And I think about it does require a selfless action. It requires passion. It requires pursuit of that passion. That passion that you had, you won that first race, but how tough was that coming out of your shell and, <laughs> and stepping into that space? That had to be difficult. Incredible. I mean, you were an introvert. So how was it to, did you think you stood a chance at winning that race? Yes. Yeah. Um, there were, it was an open seat. There were five of us running uh, in the primary and all of us were first time candidates. So I figured, you know, I'm going in this with a win-win mindset, do my best because I want to be in a position where I can actually affect uh, positive change for my community. And I've got just as fair a shot as anybody else. Um, and if I win, great, I'll be in that position. If I don't win, then I will have come out the other end of this with a tremendous amount of experience and knowledge that I could then put to use towards that same outcome of, of trying to bring about positive change for my community. It was, it was harder than I ever thought it would be. Um, you know, the first day that uh, I went to go knock on doors, you know, I bought the voter registration list uh, off the internet for like a hundred bucks you know, went to Kinko's and made a bunch of Xerox copies of a brochure I made on the computer. And that's what I was armed with by myself in my little uh, aqua-colored two-door Geo Metro <laughs> <laughs> stick shift, <laughs> which I had just learned how to drive um, uh, in Eva Beach. And on a hot summer day in Hawaii, sat there sweating bullets for a good 20, 30 minutes in my car I don't even know if I had AC, to be honest. <laughs> all I remember was hot. It was really hot, but I was trying to summon up the courage to go knock on that first door. And all these anxieties coming in, which were normal for me in any kind of encounter, but thinking, okay, like who's going to be behind that door? Uh, what if they're not nice? What if they ask me questions I don't know the answer to? What if I make a fool of myself? You know, what if they slam the door in my face? Like every single negative scenario that I could possibly imagine was running through my head. And somehow I had to, you know, work my way through all of these head trips um, in order to actually physically get out of my car and go and knock on that door. Obviously, I did eventually. There was a 
very kind, older Filipino woman who answered the door and she couldn't have been more welcoming, invited me in, gave me a glass of water. We had a great conversation. My, I was just like, oh gosh, this is great. <laughs> and then I left and I was like, oh crap, I got to go to another door. And then this whole process reset from the beginning. And uh, to be frank, I mean, this is, this is something that I, and all the introverts listening, uh, I think will definitely relate, but whether it's knocking on doors, going and giving a speech in front of, you know, hundreds or a thousand people, or, um, you know, going into a social reception or a social function, like my instinct is to go stand in the corner. <laughs> yeah. When you run for office, you have to go and talk to people. <laughs> you have to introduce yourself and, you know, share your vision. And why, like, that's the first question. Why are you running? And be able to answer that in a way that actually imparts what's in your heart. And it was incredibly challenging, not only for that election I ended up winning, uh, but also in the next election that I ran in a few years later for city council. I mean, for years, this was something that I continued to uh, internally struggle with until I got to a point where it was just like, again, years later, I got to a point where I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, this is this is not a sustainable way. You want to go and, and do this work for your community in this public um, sphere, but internally having all of these struggles and challenges. And, and it took, uh, it took some, some deep prayer and introspection for me to come to the realization, like Tulsi, all of your fears and anxieties are coming from a very selfish place. Because mm. when I would run through that list, it's like, what if they don't like me? What if they uh, are angry at me? What if I look stupid? What if I, 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 me, 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 all this crap? And I realized like, holy shit, I am here motivated by a desire to help and serve others. But the thing that's that's making it so hard and so difficult for me is really coming from a very selfish place. Mm. So stop thinking about yourself and focus on in every interaction, your purpose and sharing your aloha and your desire to serve with whoever it is you're talking to, whether it's somebody you're shaking a hand with for a half a second, you know, walking down the Christmas parade in Kaneohe, or if it's you talking to thousands of people or you're at somebody's door, make every interaction count and share your aloha, treat that person with respect. Let them know that you are there for them. They are not there for you. Mm. You are there for them. And that that um, that realization changed everything for mm. me. Because instead of walking into that room filled with, you know, 100 people during a cocktail hour and having to figure out, okay, who am I going to go talk to and feeling that sense of anxiety like, oh, man, I just want to go hide in the corner and maybe somebody will come talk to me. <laughs> <laughs> then it's like, okay, like I'm here. I have a purpose. And my purpose is to share that kindness, respect, and aloha with whoever I talk to. And um, it's it, it changed everything. Yeah. That's awesome. So when you got in that first office, what did you what did you realize was politics everything that you thought it would be? Was were you kind of surprised that, you know, I'm sure when you get in there, you know, you're bright eyed and bushy tailed, you're ready to make changes. And then you realize maybe the world's a little bit different than you thought. What, what was yeah. that like stepping into the position? Did you did you were you surprised at how tough it was? 
I, I, I wasn't as surprised maybe um, as I would have been if I was just coming in cold to the legislative process, but there were some, there were some kind of grassroots legislative initiatives that I had been a part of um, prior to that. So I had a bit and, and, and which actually kind of led to me wanting to run for office in the first place. Uh, one of which was they, there was um, a project to build a landfill over one of our major water aquifers that supplied, you know, clean drinking water to at least a third of the island of Oahu, which has a population of about a million people. Because we are the most remote island chain in the world, you can imagine if that landfill were to leach contaminants into that water aquifer, contaminating it, um, it would be generations before that water aquifer could be used again what do you do? We don't have desalination plants here. So the only other way to get drinking water, once those other, you know, water aquifers are maxed out is to fly it in or ship it in, which is just not feasible. So uh, that was that was a community driven event that I was a part of leading where, you know, we went and we got the signatures and we kind of organized people to say, hey, this is a great danger to our community. The politician who was in charge of the state Senate at the time was greasing the wheels for the company that was trying to build the landfill, and thankfully we were able to stop it. Um, so that was that was an impactful um, that was an impactful experience. Uh, so, but it also made it so that I kind of had some idea of the dynamics of what I was walking into. And, and again, you know, looking back towards that first race or any any political race I ran since, whether it's for city council, Congress, and then running for president. I've always been a very independent minded person and I have never been kind of the quote unquote pick of the party. I've always been viewed as the outsider. Um, and I'm so great. It, 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 did it make it harder? Yeah, sure. Um, had to scrap for, for every single thing that, that we needed to run these campaigns, but I'm so grateful for that, uh, because I, I wasn't, tainted by even the perception of being beholden to the quote unquote party and never, ever, ever lost sight of the fact that, Hey, in any one of these positions, I know who I work for. I know who I was hired by. And I was hired by the voters and the people in my community, in my state, um, who gave me their trust. And, and that's a huge thing. Yeah. That's a huge thing. I, I don't know what you're talking about, Tulsi. The Democratic Party seems to love you. <laughs> <laughs> Let me know who you're listening to. I'm curious. <laughs> so uh, you're in you're in council. What what made you decide that you wanted this career in the army? I mean, you hadn't grown up with that. No. Well, my my uh, my grand both of my grandfathers had served in the military. Um, my uh, my dad's side of the family, uh, a few of my uncles had served in the military, some for their entire career. Uh, my dad had tried to join the military to go be a medic during Vietnam, and um, uh, he went with his, his best friend from high school. They were both going to go to Vietnam together, both going to be medics. They went to MEPS, uh, got separated, and his friend made it through. My dad did not. I think uh, they rejected him because he had flat feet. Um, so... For me, it, it I never thought of it as like, oh, I want to have a career in the military, just like I never thought I want to have a career in politics. Both of those decisions um, came from that place where at that time I felt that 
that's where I could serve. Uh, and so for the military, it came, you know, in the wake of 9-11 and like everyone in this country and it, it was it was life-changing. You know, growing up here in Hawaii, I never really thought much about quote-unquote foreign policy and, you know, what are the geopolitical threats that we face and all this other stuff. But obviously that was a wake-up call to everyone. And my my instinct was, hey, I want to... I want to do my part to serve my country and go after the guys who did this, go after the Al-Qaeda terrorists and jihadists who did this to us. And I was, um, I was running for state house at the time and offering to serve my community. So it took me a little while to try to figure out, okay, how can I, how can I answer both calls to serve both my community and the state as well as our country? And that's where I, I uh, enlisted in the Hawaii Army National Guard uh, mm. in a medical unit. And what time frame was this? This was in, I enlisted in April of 2003. Okay. I was, uh, I was elected to the state legislature in November of 2002 and uh, enlisted on the floor of the state house here wow. in Hawaii and then shipped off to basic training at Fort Jackson. I think it was in, in uh, like May or June or something like that as, as pretty much as soon as our legislative session was over. Mm. Did anybody know who you were? Uh, not for a while. Yeah. I was able to... Try to keep it quiet. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. It doesn't I, get better for you when people know. No. I've, I somehow instinctually knew that going there. Plus, I just like, I, I don't, this is not about politics at all. And I just want to go and go through training like everybody else. And so, um, you know, when, when we showed up on uh, whatever, in processing day, um, Bravo company 260th at Fort Jackson was where, was where I went to, you know, they gave us all, put us all in the bay, sat down. They're like, all right, Hey, fill out all these forms. It's like a bio sheet. Like what's your name, address, yada, yada, occupation. And so I'm not going to lie. So I put state representative on there. And as one might expect, those papers were never looked at or read by anyone. <laughs> and so I thought they read everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> sat there and like, yeah, great interest. But I made it through. Um, I made it through. I think like the first seven weeks without anybody knowing anything. Nice. And then I was pulling um, like CQ duty. I was a PFC at the time. My battle buddy, I think she was a PFC as well from the Midwest. And so we were both sitting there at the CQ desk in the battalion headquarters. Battalion Sergeant Major comes walking in and does what Sergeant Majors do. It's like, hey, privates, how are you? How's training? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? And uh, what do you do at home? And so he's talking to my battle buddy and came to me. And he's like, oh, are you from? oh I'm from Hawaii. And so what do you do back home? So I told him, I was like, oh, I'm a state representative in the state legislature. And his jaw just dropped. He looked, <laughs> he looked at me like, what? Like, and he literally said, like, how come I don't know this? I, I said, Sergeant Major, I, nobody's asked, and I wrote it on the form when we got here. Uh, he's like, stand by. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm pretty sure my drill sergeants got, got a bit of an earful after that. But uh, to, to their credit, um, other than some ribbing from the drill sergeants, of course, uh, you know, the, it, we, we were nearing the end of basic training anyway, and it, everything was fine. Everything was great. How soon did you find yourself deployed? Like how, how long did that take? So I finished you... my, uh, I finished my AIT, I guess in like November of that year, came back and, uh, was campaigning for reelection in 2004 
and uh, it looked to be, I didn't really have any real opposition. Um, so it looked to be an easy reelection campaign when uh, that summer, our the Hawaii National Guard's brigade, 29th Brigade Combat Team was uh, called up for a deployment to Iraq. Uh, I was in a headquarters medical unit and heard very quickly from my commander, um, hey, Tulsi, good, uh, good news. You, you don't have to deploy. Like, you're not on the mandatory deployment roster because there's somebody else already filled, filled the slot. And uh, so you get to stay home. And, and pretty much right away, I was just like, no, that's, I'm not staying home. That's crazy. There's no way that I'm going to stay back and watch all of you guys go and deploy to Iraq while I sit here in like, you know, this fancy office. And so, um, we went back and forth. He pushed back a little bit. We went back and forth and he realized like, no, I'm, I'm not budging. And so they had a different job, uh, in the medical unit that needed to be filled uh, I withdrew from my reelection campaign and then we went to our pre-deployment training at Fort Bliss, uh, Camp McGregor and Donna Anna for oh, yeah. all of those. I did that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I was at McGregor. There yep. you go. Mm-hmm. So we lived out there for a few months, uh, for our pre-deployment train up and then, uh, and then deployed to Iraq for a year after that. Mm. So 12 months. Yeah. What, what was that like? What, what was it like deploying to Iraq? Was it everything that you thought? Did you, you know, you never really know completely what to expect, right? Um, you, you, you hear a lot, you feel like you go through an endless amount of training, but when push comes to shove, reality is never a carbon copy of what you train for. Uh, it, it was, was for me serving in a medical unit, um, the realities of the cost of the human cost of war, uh, were ever present from, you know, I think it was day two that we were there. We were in uh, LSA Anaconda. Did you go through there? Uh, yes. Yeah, yes. just about mm-hmm. everybody went through there at one yeah. point or another. Primarily, we were there. We had people in our brigade in four different kind of battle spaces in the country. Um, so I moved around a little bit uh, to go and, like, help help our medical guys who were, who were out supporting uh, a lot of the other teams. But on day two, when I was walking around the camp there at the North Gate... Uh, for those who were there, will remember very clearly. There's a huge sign. Um, I don't know who made it, but there's a huge sign with big block letters at the gate before you leave that you see every day that said, "Is today the day?" And uh, that was an ever-present reminder of uh, that any day could be our last. And so, um, you know, personally understanding. And accepting that reality of life and death and wanting to make the most of life, mm-hmm. not knowing how much time we have. Um, this was only further um, settled in and reinforced when not only we lost, you know, when we had our first casualty, uh, but also... Um, every single day, the very, literally the very first thing I did every day was to go through a list, uh, that was generated by, you know, the force commander for the country, uh, that had a by name list of everyone who had been, um, you know, hurt or injured or, you know, some casualty the day, the day, the previous 24 hours and to go in and look for any of 
the people who belonged to us and make sure that they were by us, meaning our brigade combat team, make sure that they were getting the care that they needed either to stay in country or to get them evacuated as quickly as possible. And then following them until they were able to get back to their, their home, their families. And, uh, it, it, you know, it, it was, I'll say it never, it never became a rote task every day, especially, uh, seeing people whose names I knew on there, a lot of people who I didn't know, but understanding with every one of those names, there's a loved one or a family or a child, uh, back home who are worried sick about them. And that coming from a political background and understanding how too many of our politicians don't get it, you know, they don't understand who pays the price for their decisions. We saw too many of them come and pop in, get the photo op, shake the hands, you know, pat people on the back, maybe stay for 12 hours, 24 hours until they move on. And then when they get back to Washington, I, I it just like, it, it made me laugh and it made me sick at the same time when I saw some of these politicians like, I, I've been to combat zone 37 times and I know what this is like. No, you don't know anything about what this is all about. So don't even try to pretend go and talk to the people who do, who live this experience, look into their eyes, look into the eyes of their families and understand the gravity of the decision that you're making, both in when and where our troops, Congress's responsibility, constitutional responsibility is to declare war. Congress has abdicated on that responsibility for a very long time, but that is the, Congress, the, the constitutionally dictated responsibility of Congress know the impact of that before you make that decision. Um, know the impact of the decisions that you make about training and readiness, taking care of families, taking care of veterans, what happens here at home uh, in, in taking care of the people um, who have made that decision to say, yes, I'm raising my right hand, taking this oath to support and to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and being willing to sacrifice my life to do so. And that, that, um, coming out of that experience, coming out of that deployment uh, and the many lessons that I personally learned is what, uh, drove me to recognize I want to be in a position somehow, some way to take those experiences and impact the decisions that are made in Washington about our military, about foreign policy, about our veterans. Um, because I can bring my own unique little experience to making better informed decisions uh, than those that are currently being made. Where, where does that fit into the scope of your ideas of war? Because obviously, you know, you're kind of known for being non-interventionist as mm -hmm. far as across the world goes. Did that change when you were over there yeah. or yeah, did your idea of war change and yeah. what that meant and how to be so careful in deciding who you went to war with? Yeah, absolutely. It changed. And, and really it's about, you know, the more I learned, the more I knew I wanted to learn more, both in understanding, you know, what we're talking about, about the human cost and how these decisions really need to be made with the greatest level of care in thinking about honoring the sacrifices that our servicemen and women make, and also recognizing in order to honor those sacrifices, when we go to war, 
it needs to be in service of the best interest of our country, in service of the safety, security, and freedom of the American people, not in service of some, you know, military industrial complex profit-making venture, not in the service of going and trying to be the policemen of the world and picking and choosing which dictator we want to overthrow and which country we're going to try to create a mini America in, which by the way, even with the best of intentions throughout history has caused more harm than good for the people in these countries where we go and meddle. Um, and, and so my own personal experiences uh, coupled with really a study of, of history and how unfortunately, again, we have leaders who don't know history, don't are not interested in learning from it, and who are are motivated, um, who are not focused on that right motivation, which is before making these decisions about foreign policy, about peace and war, and about our men and women in uniform, what is our objective? What are we trying to accomplish? And and ensuring that that objective serves the best interests of the United States and the American people. Mm -hmm. uh, too often we've seen, you know, I mean, we could we could speak for hours about different examples. Of course, the most recent being Afghanistan. You can look at Iraq and regime change in Iraq. You can look at the regime change war and effort in Syria. You can look at so many different examples that you and I and our peers have lived through. Uh, and frankly, our friends who have not lived through these wars and uh, look at how devastatingly our policy leaders and even some of our milita military leaders have failed failed us and failed the country. Mm, well said. Do you what what made you then decide was that the moment of being over there and <clears throat> going down that list was that the moment where you knew you needed to be in Congress like that? I knew that I needed to be somewhere where I could I could impact. That I didn't mm -hmm. I it didn't immediately go to Congress, you know, honestly when I came back I was I wasn't sure how or where and you know, I was looking at a few different um, possibilities, you know, with different organizations that were working on foreign policy or on veterans issues. After that first deployment, I came back and actually went to work as a legislative aide for one of Hawaii's U.S. senators, uh, Senator Akaka, who was the chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee at the time. Mm. And he um, he's a World War II veteran. Oh, wow. As was his partner, uh, Daniel K. Inoy, Medal of Honor recipient. Wow. Who served in the, the famous Gopher Broke um, 442nd Infantry Division, still today the most decorated infantry division um, in the Army's history. Wow. And the all Nisei, the all Japanese um, division that was formed at that time because you know, the rest of the military didn't want to serve with Japanese Americans. Um, but working there in Washington for Senator Akaka as he was chair of the Veterans Affairs Committee really was a great opportunity for me to learn more as well as to bring that like real time experience to some of the decisions and policies that he was pushing forward where, you know, you know well, Tim, as, as does anyone who serves like, you know, maybe even the best of ideas that trickles downhill and becomes yet another death by PowerPoint. Okay, everybody sign in. Somebody had this great idea. We got to listen to this PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> but really, is it achieving the impact that was intended? No, no, not at all. So even those ideas, great idea fairies with the good intent, by the time it gets to the point of execution. So being able to just bring those experiences and say, hey, I just came back from a deployment. I just went through 
uh, taps, or I just went through, you know, the, especially as guardsmen and women, the, um, uh, you know, the, the redeployment kind of transition, what services are offered and so on and so forth. Uh, and so giving them that honest feedback that they weren't getting from the VA or from the DOD was, was very helpful. Mm. How did you, at that point, did you decide then that you were going to move up the ranks and try to... No, so I was there for two years. I then, um, I went through OCS and uh, had the privilege of leading a platoon on uh, our second deployment with the 29th Brigade Combat Team. And, uh, you know, again, many, many teachable moments during that deployment came back uh, with that, with even greater motivation to want to... um, to be in a position of impact on these on these national and global issues, didn't see an opportunity. I had applied for the White House Fellows at that time, and uh, it's a it's a highly competitive position, basically, where you can go and, if selected, work as a special assistant to the president, to the Secretary of Defense, to the Secretary of State, to a cabinet level um, uh, secretary, and you you just kind of skip to the 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 front row seats uh made it to the finals was not selected was very dejected like Mm. i thought this is what i was supposed to do turns out it wasn't uh and that was when i ran for city council um because i saw that as a way that i could continue to serve my community and then it wasn't until 2012 when my former boss senator akaka announced that he'd be retiring from the senate that our um, congresswoman at the time announced she would run for his seat which left an open seat in congress and that was uh, that was when I knew that hey, the 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 odds are long, <laughs> you know the <laughs> winds are running against me, uh, the powers that be are are pointed in a, a a very different direction and against me, but I have to give it my best shot because this is this is what I have to do. So this is fair to say that this is a really first example of real pushback from the powers that be. For sure, they don't want you there. For sure what was it like running for that position? And, you know, obviously now you're getting into a space where you need donor money, mm-hmm. right? There's packs behind what you're doing and there's, you know, groups that have their own self-interest. I mean, mm-hmm. we've seen it so many times where somebody steps into office and they have all these ideas and then they get into office and all of a sudden those ideas change very quickly. Yeah. And they're a shadow of what we remember them as, right? I, I mean, I see it all the time for my buddies now, like, Hey, what happened to so-and-so? You know, he was so cool going in and now, you know, he's, his ideas have shifted and changed and he seems like a different person. How did you, how, how were you able to maintain that through the process? Yeah. Once again, I was very clear headed, clear eyed about why I was running and who I was, um, who I was serving and who I, who I was working for. And it was both, uh, our brothers and sisters in uniform, both those who, paid the ultimate price, those who came home, those who would serve after us, those who come after us, and it's the people of Hawaii. Mm. And so um, literally as I traveled around the state campaigning, uh, whether it was a small group or a large group or a one-on-one conversation, I told every one of them, I said, I'm applying for a job from you. This is a rigorous interview process for you to decide who you want to be your voice and your representative fighting for you in Washington. And I did so again without, um, you know, the, the quote unquote establishment powers that be here in Hawaii, uh, 
many of them were not disrespectful, but I heard no more often than yes. And a lot of them just saying, Tulsi, like, you know, we think you're smart. You're great. You got a bright future, but it's just not your time. Why don't you try to run for Congress in like 20 or 30 years? And, uh, you know, respectfully, it's like, okay, thanks, but <laughs> I'm, I'm doing this and I'm not doing it for you. Uh, and you don't get to decide the election. Yeah. And so, um, you know, I started out that campaign with like 3% name recognitions with wow. like 3% of voters in this district, the second district, which covers every island in the state of Hawaii, uh, except for essentially the South shore of Oahu, the urban corridor, uh, 3% of people knew who, who I was. So I not only had to convince them to vote for me, I had to say, hi, I'm Tulsi. <laughs> I had to let them know that I existed in the first place. Once again, not a position you're super comfortable in, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which that's a whole other thing. Like seeing my face on billboards and signs, I physically like would turn the other direction because I could not <laughs> handle it. It was so uncomfortable. Um, but then fast forward, uh, four months before election day, I'd gone from 3% to 25%. And I was running against a guy who had 100% name recognition and had all of the backing of everyone who had something to give, right? Because he was going to win. Even the people who didn't like him were giving him money because they're like, well, he's going to win. So we got to be on his good side. Um, on election day, we beat him by 22%. Wow. And uh, it was shocking to a lot of people here. And uh, even some people in DC, they're like, oh, okay, what was it? What scandal? Like what, what turned it? The thing that turned it was people exercising their voices and their votes to tell the establishment we get to decide not you not the media not the big corporate bosses or big union bosses or big party bosses we as voters get to decide and this is who we trust mm -hmm. and this is who we're sending to washington and i've never ever ever forgotten that yeah. and remain humbled by that. I served in Congress for eight years until I, I decided not to run for re-election. What did you like most about being in that position and maybe least as well? <laughs> <laughs> you were, you know, you weren't uh, a prominent member of the, of the women's group there that developed, you know, it got very powerful <laughs> and you were kind of on the outside. Are you outside referring of, to the squad? Yeah, the squad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you weren't a part of the squad. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you weren't invited into I the I had group. my own squad. <laughs> you had your own squad. You <laughs> squad of one and the Hawaiian people with your backing. <laughs> yeah. What, what, what was that what was your favorite part yeah. of that the fit my, my really my favorite part of that was the part that a lot of people never heard of and that was being in a position to help individual veterans who called our office and said hey i you know i was one one person in particular who i remember this is a vietnam veteran who was injured in combat was never issued a purple heart because there's no paperwork. How can we issue, how can we issue you, uh, award you with the Purple Heart that you've earned? The guy had shrapnel in his leg wow. still since the Vietnam War. And he's a judge here in Hawaii. They wouldn't award him his Purple Heart. So we were able to help work through the red tape and the bureaucracy. And it was so special because I, I had the honor of presenting him with his Purple Heart uh, at Schofield Barracks, wow. at the infantry battalion that he was assigned to during Vietnam. 
and he had his family there. And it was, it was such a powerful moment. And to the rest of the world, that may mean nothing, but to him and to his family, it was everything. Mm -hmm. It was being able to help family members who had a medical emergency on one of the other islands and needed urgent medical care that was not available to them on that island and being able to work all possible avenues in order to get them essentially a medevac flight to come here to Oahu and get the care that they needed that ultimately saved their lives. Uh, There's so many different stories that I could share of people who called and who needed help tackling whatever the issue was with the federal government and being able to work those problems with them and for them that in many cases were life-changing. We, I was often the call of last resort. Uh, there's a, a, a someone who's become a very good friend here who's a, a local community leader in Waimanalo, and uh, he had my cell phone number because of different work we'd done in the communities, a Vietnam veteran. And I was I was doing some work here in the house one day, and he, I saw my phone ring, and it was uh, Andy is his name. Andy was calling me. I was like, oh, I, I haven't heard from Andy in a while, you know answer the phone and said, Hey, Andy. And he said, Tulsi, I'm at the hospital, Castle Hospital down the street. I am being told, I think he had like a minor heart attack, went to the hospital and they were very concerned that it was getting worse and that he would need surgery in order to prevent him from having a potentially fatal heart attack. Um, he was being told by the VA that he would have to wait there until they determined his eligibility to get his care from the VA and get that surgery that would be necessary to save his life. And this is not like, you know, we'll wait an hour. This was potentially like, yeah, tomorrow, next day, maybe. Meanwhile, his doctor here at the local hospital is like, you might not make it till then. And so thank God he had my number. I called, we started making phone calls. We were able to get him the transport that he needed to get to the VA hospital. Um, But it saved his life. Wow. It literally saved his life. And so those, those being in a position where, you know, I could get people to answer my calls when unfortunately they weren't answering the calls or taking care of the people that they're supposed to be taking care of. um, Incredibly rewarding. That's awesome. So, the least, <laughs> the least, the least favorite. What the was the least, hardest? I mean, yeah. It's, I mean, you've. I'm sure you're fighting for representation for Hawaii. Yeah. Um, you know that other states are probably considered heavily above, right? Mm-hmm. So you're having to fight for the state that's that's all. That's all part it's of on it. its own. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, we're a small state, and you look at states like California, Texas, New York, who have strong representation in Congress. So. All, all that means is like you have to make friends and build those relationships on both sides of the aisle uh, so that like like I was able to do for my constituents, that people would answer the phone when I called and said, hey, you know, here's what's going on in my community. Uh, here's my legislation. Will you consider it? Will you support it? Will you co-sponsor it? And so on. And uh, And I was able to do that. And I was able to pass legislation uh, because of those relationships. The thing that that... Uh, the thing that I liked least and the thing that was so disheartening was the um, the partisanship 
and the trivial and kind of transactional nature of Washington gamesmanship. And it, it angered me so much to see how much both Congress and Washington was like high school, where even on the House floor, I, I could take you there and sit in the gallery and point to you all of the different cliques and where they gathered on the House floor and who was talking to who where and who was talking about who and where and just the petty crap, which, A, like that happens probably in a lot of workplaces, but we're talking about the people's house where every single individual there was elected to do a job with serious consequences, not only related to war and peace, but related to, you know, education and healthcare and transportation and all of these things that affect our everyday lives, everyday lives of, of, of the American people. And so it was just, it was so disheartening and, and, um, uh, really unfortunate to see that there were there were just too many people there who were there for the so-called glitz and glamour and attention of the job and the title than they were about actually doing the work of the people maybe they were doing the work of their party but actually not you know the actually being there to do the work of the people more often than not is lost mm. and it's only gotten worse unfortunately yeah, I, I can only imagine. It, is it hard, you know, you get somebody like a co-sponsor of Bill, like uh, Rand Paul, you mm-hmm. know, out of Kentucky. You you know very well. Yeah. Is it hard when those ideas are shot down almost immediately within your party because you're working across the aisle? Because that, that often happened, right? It often happened, and it, and it was something that we were told as new members of Congress almost from day zero when we showed up. It was a class of 84 new members of Congress. I think if I remember correctly, it's 50 Democrats, 34 Republicans. And we spent the first week together going through policy retreats and kind of, you know, just getting the lay of the land, ethics briefings and all these sorts of things. They called it freshman orientation. And then after that, it was like there was this bifurcation where Democrats go to this side, Republicans go to this side. We we were literally broken up and separated. And in comparing notes, we were we were all kind of told the same thing, which is like, hey, this is about um, winning the next election. This is about either getting power or keeping power. And you know, it's not a good idea to work with people from the other party, because if you do that, then it'll help them show they're effective and getting the job done, which will help them get reelected and make it harder for us to beat them. And, and so, you know, that's what we were told. And then I, we, we experienced it in practice that, that, that is actually reality that these, so many of these decisions are being made about what, what bills are allowed to come to the floor for a vote. Um, you know, whether people support it or not are literally being based, uh, made, they're being made based on whether or not it's politically advantageous for whoever's in power hmm. rather than being based on what is best for the people. And how much did that come into effect when you were running for president, when you decided to run for president? Did you see that heavily? Like your choices to work with, across the aisle where it hurt you? Do you think that it hurt you? Um, or do you think it helped you? Well, it just, it depends, you know, I mean, it's, it's subjective. I it helped su- you with the people. I su- yeah. I mean, people who, <laughs> people who want their representatives to actually like get things done. Yeah. Found it to be refreshing. 
people who were uh, very deeply entrenched in their political party and couldn't see past that, uh, they didn't see it as a positive at all. Um, you know, actually calling out and saying, hey, like the Democratic Party needs to get back to its roots of actually focusing on fighting for the little guy, mm. you know, fighting for working people, protecting the environment, all of these different things. Uh, the party didn't take kindly to that kind of constructive criticism. Um, and ultimately it was because, you know, there, there's, there's a lot of different examples of different things that came up, but ultimately uh I was not a good foot soldier for the party bosses mm. and therefore was seen as a threat to their power. Uh, and so they worked with their friends in big mainstream media to do everything that they could to shut me up and smear my character and undermine my campaign. Mm. You're in that position for eight years. In Congress, I served in for Congress. eight years. Yeah. W what was the decision to get out of that? Was it that was it ultimately it, it ultimately um my decision not to run for re-election in 2020 was based on a recognition that dysfunction in congress had gotten to such a level dysfunction and partisanship and d divisiveness had gotten to such a level that i felt that i could do more elsewhere mm, okay and uh like i like i said you know i i never entered politics whether it was back in 2002 when I ran for state house or when I ran for Congress or when I ran for president at no point have I ever thought, well, this is a career. And so some people were surprised that I didn't run again for reelection because theoretically, Hey, that maybe that's a job I could have kept for, you know, another decade. Mm -hmm. That was never a consideration or a thought that entered my mind because, you know, I didn't see it as like a job, <laughs> you know. I I saw. How dare you? It, I know. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> I I saw it every two years as an opportunity to serve, and um, and if if constantly reassessing how and where can I best be of service, and at that point in time, and and I've no regrets in that decision. Uh, I felt that I could be of more positive impact and, and service elsewhere. How do you see that now? Where What's your service now? Obviously, I see it, you know, but I want you to answer that question for everybody listening. How do you see that now? And what, what's the change that you want to impact most now? And where well, right at? now we're living in a, a time of, of um, you know, chaos, cancel culture, wokeism, censorship, our fundamental constitutional rights and freedoms are under attack. Things like freedom of speech, which used to be something that everyone could agree was uh, not only good and important, but something worth fighting for, has now become, you talk about freedom of speech and people automatically think, oh, well, you must be a right-wing conservative. <laughs> you use the word patriot. Oh, you must be a right-wing conservative. You use... You know, you say the words, I love my country, mm. um, right-wing conservative. I mean, it's, it's, we are living in, in a, a time of such insanity that, that our constitution is, is frankly being threatened in many ways. 
And uh, so using whatever platforms I have available to be a voice to continue to uphold my oath. Mm. You know, that oath that we take as service members is the same oath I took as a member of Congress. And it's one that I took to heart. It's not something that goes away when you lay down the uniform. It's not something that goes away uh, in, in my heart. And so taking those stands and, and uh, hopefully inspiring other people to similarly recognize that, you know, we, we will lose the country that we love if we don't take a stand for our freedoms and, and for our democracy. Mm. How do we, how do we do that? Uh, you know, you talk about, you know, working across both sides of the Mm -hmm. aisle. Can you really do that successfully in, in Washington? Can you work across both sides of the aisle and be successful? Is that possible? It is possible. Yeah. It's, uh, we we need a wholesale change in leadership, mm. uh, and I, I would say that across both parties. Um, is it possible? Yes. Is it difficult in this environment? Sure, because the entrenched powers uh, essentially stand in opposition to that. And so, you know, we're approaching a, a big election year this year in 2022 with the midterms, obviously another big election in 2024 with the presidential campaigns for everyone who is concerned about our future for the parents who are concerned about what their kids are being taught in schools for, um, people who value freedom. We have to take action and being engaged in our political process in some fashion, whether you're somebody who wants to run for office, you support someone who is running for office, or you are obviously at a basic minimum voting, um, using your voice within whatever sphere of influence you have, you may think like, oh, I'm just one person. But when you you pick up your phone and you look at the people in your phone, those people in your phone are within your sphere of influence. Those are people that you can have conversations with. And they may be some people who you don't agree with on everything. Awesome. Don't see that as a negative. In this environment, people are like, oh, that they voted for the other guy. I can't talk to them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like, oh, we disagree on this. They're horrible. Yeah. They, I'm right. They're wrong. It's like, it's it's so unfortunate that that uh, this is what what so much of our conversation is reduced to us versus them rather than getting back to our foundation of who we are as Americans and starting our conversation there and then actually having a real conversation, listening, learning. Hey, you and I, Tim, probably agree on some things, disagree on others. You've got a different background, upbringing perspective that, than I do. And so through having a conversation we both can learn and grow and maybe we come out the other side with the same exact positions we walked in on, or maybe we're thinking about things maybe a little differently than, than we had before. That's life. You know, that happens in our everyday lives, hopefully (laughs) in our own personal relationships, professional relationships, whatever. Um, but, but this open and free marketplace of ideas and dialogue and conversation is and respect is, is, those are the things that each of us can do to start to bring about the change that we want to see. Yeah. I, you know, I found it with too many times with uh, the question I would ask or, or I, in bringing your name up and you being a part of the project, a lot of people, you know, knew who you were and a lot of people 
were fans of yours, uh, especially in our military community. Maybe guys that weren't necessarily, you know, they, let's be honest, they were Republicans and were hard right wingers, you know, as described by the media. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're Trumpers. Because <laughs> you know, you got a flag in front of your yeah, house. Yeah, because you got a flag in front of the house. Surely. And an American flag. Yeah. Let me be specific. Whoa, that's racist. <laughs> or so, you have a don't tread on me flag. Oh my I mean, gosh, this one is yeah. now literally this Under thing attack. that just came out in the FBI. Right, that that if you ha- what is it the Gadsden flag? Gadsden flag, yeah. That if you have that flag, that 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 may be a sign that you are a domestic extremist. Yeah, it's yeah. It, the Betsy Ross flag. Same, like it is. Anyway, it, I, I digress. Yeah, his, <laughs> historical establishment and you know things that we understand are part of history, not perfect. Uh, obviously, you know, we, and we talk about it in Texas very often the come and take it flag. You know, yeah. being our first. You know, oh well, that that's against. Hispanic people. And it's like, well, no. Yeah. A, a lot of our Texas army was Hispanic. Mm-hmm. Like, there's great history there, you know, with that flag. Uh, our ability to independently think and choose. We're big on that in Texas. You mm-hmm. know, that's a huge thing for us. Uh, so these historical ideas are not perfect, of course. And as we examine them across time, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Uh, who knows what was going on in that time, in that day and age? Uh, but the Gadsden flag is a big part of our history, and right. so to you know call that a terrorism emblem is just absolutely insanity. And, and I think it's important to, as we look at history, and we look at both the victories and the failures, to learn, to grow, and to strive toward that more perfect union. That is such an important thing that I think is lost by people who. Uh, reduce who we are as a country to the the scars and and uh, you know the the marks of our past, um, rather than saying let's learn from the bad, let's learn from the good, and together continue to strive towards that more perfect union. Let's let's talk about that a little bit. So you know we talk about divisiveness and ideals. Your ideals have changed grown a little bit right as you've gone and as you've served in time some of the comments that i've gotten or messages that i've gotten you saw one of them today you were (laughs) able to quickly in a way that i was not able to Mm -hmm. you know i didn't even know the argument i'm like whatever stop fighting tulsi man (laughs) she's my friend (laughs) you handled that very well by the way (laughs) did i you handled it with grace i think i I felt you know i didn't feel so graceful he was disrespecting you in your comments on your page yeah but you responded with respect and what we would call aloha and i was impressed good oh thank you i feel good about that because i thought she sees that comment. Is that going to come across as mean or angry? But I, I felt, you know, I felt calm in my approach. Maybe I wanted to kind of go for the throat punch. But, you know, as I read it, I thought, this is somebody that wants to understand. And then as they comment back, you realize they're not really looking. They're really looking to hear themselves talk. Exactly. They don't really care about the change that's being made. They don't really care about the idea that, you know, people can grow. Mm-hmm. How have your ideals changed since you've ran? And, and, and can you explain that a little bit? Maybe not specifically, but how, how do we evolve and grow? I wouldn't say my ideals and principles have changed. Uh, certainly on different issues, perhaps, as I've learned and, and grown and been exposed to different experiences or situations are changing. I mean, yeah, uh, perhaps. But when I say my ideals and principles haven't changed, um, they have always been rooted in that foundation of 
of love of God and love of country mm-hmm. and um, my desire to always try to do what is right and in the best interest of the people yeah. of this country. And his specific example was wrong, right? It was not. It was It was actually factually false. Mm. And um, what was that? What it was, was uh, you know, this, this made a comment on your page about me being spineless because in a uh, one of the debates during the Democratic presidential primary, uh, he said that, oh, you know, Tulsi raised her hand agreeing that we as a country should provide free health care to all illegal immigrants uh, who either come across the border or who are in the country. And uh, I, you know, there was a lot that happened in that campaign. I might not remember all the details of every single thing, but that was one specifically I remembered because I was one of the people who did not raise my hand. Mm. And I don't remember if it was in the debate or after the debate had to explain to people why I did not raise my hand uh, and also was vocal in that campaign and, and in those debates about uh, why open border policies uh, were... Um, detrimental to our country on on many levels, and so his accusation was that I that my that I basically just went along with the flow, mm-hmm. uh, specifically on this issue of immigration, uh, when it just was was not true. And you did not. <laughs> no, factually false. Yeah. Which what? which the the like let's let's just get to that. I mean, I encourage everyone to be discerning. If you see something on social media, don't assume that it's true. If we see somebody make a comment about something, uh, don't assume that it's true. Be discerning. If it's something that really matters to you and it really concerns you, do your research. Yeah. And uh, if you can't find the answer, you know, go to somebody or someplace where, who has the answer. Um, I, I, I can't even tell you how many times there are things that fly around that um that are that are actually consequential like they're not small nitpicky issues like oh she's this or she's that and it's like you know you 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 try to respond right and say well no that's not true and it's like oh well you're a liar or you're a flip-flopper or you're this or you're that it's like you know it's so so my point is don't believe everything you read on the internet (laughs) what (laughs) or that you see on television yeah How, you know, how do you do that with, you know, because there's like I was going, I was talking about a little bit earlier when I was speaking about people hearing your name. There were a lot of, there were a lot of people who knew you, but there were some that didn't and they just had no idea. And they said to me, "Ah, I don't get involved in politics. Mm -hmm. I think that's a dangerous mindset. It is. I don't think that politics is what the aim is. I think the Constitution, protecting the Constitution is very important. And uh, the the evolution of that idea has kind of changed into this. Well, the media says one thing. I don't even pay attention to the media. How dangerous is that mindset of I'm not political? It's, it's dangerous in the sense that if you live in this country, um, you are directly affected by the decisions politicians make. Whether it's your local city council member uh, who's making decisions about where your drinking water comes from, pretty practical implications. You might want to care a little bit about that. If it's your local board of education where you have people uh, who are elected making decisions about whether or not your child who is nine or 10 years old is being exposed to highly sexually graphic books in their schools 
I'm not a parent, but I would imagine if I were a parent, I would care a lot about that. Yeah. That's politics, I suppose, but that's the political process at work. So if you care about those things, you may want to learn about them and at a minimum get involved with voting, mm. but it requires being informed. If you're a service member in the military, I've, I've had, you know, friends in the military on active duty who've told me that very thing. I don't do politics. Fine. But you care about your retirement. You care about your health benefits. You care about whether or not you're going to be deployed over and over again, wondering like, what the hell are we doing in this country now? <laughs> How does this have anything to do with America or freedom or democracy? Uh, and so on and so forth. Well, if you care about those things, then you should you should get involved. You should know what's going on. And again, at a bare minimum, the bare minimum anyone can do uh, is vote and know who you're voting for hmm. uh, and make those decisions because it can be the difference between somebody voting for or against your right to free speech. Yeah. I, I think I was a lot, I think I, you know, obviously understanding history and being raised the way that I was, history was very important in my home. I was homeschooled all the way and my dad was always big on history and, you know, big on the Civil War specifically and studying that, you know, history is so important and we talk about repeating itself, yeah. you know, if we don't understand it, that idea that you can just stay out of the fray, I think we've seen in the last few years is extremely dangerous. Maybe 10 years ago, you know, I was a little bit more outside of it, but now I've become much more concerned mm -hmm. because of the things you see that do impact your life. I mean, we've seen it during COVID. We've exactly. seen it in the past few years, how much our lives are impacted by that. So it is important to maintain a, a certain level of care when it, it comes to that and, and voting. It is. Um, and also don't, don't think that running for office is for somebody else. You know, I've been encouraged by a, an increasing number of veterans who um, are running for, for Congress this year. It's mm. fantastic. We're running for their state house, their state, their, their state Senate. It's awesome. Um, I'm not saying like, just because you're a veteran, you're going to be a great leader, but uh you know, veterans bring that sense of selflessness uh, to the table and have lived what it means to put country first yeah. and know, know really what that means. And so that's important. Um, here in Hawaii, we just had our primary elections, and I was really disheartened to see that of all registered voters, only 33% actually took the time to vote. Mm. That's an abysmally low number. Um, I would have thought that in this post-COVID environment where a lot of decisions that were being made by leaders, it would fire people up and activate them a little more. Uh, but but I, I'm pretty sure this was lower than it than it was in previous years. So uh, if there are things happening, I guess the, the takeaway message here, if there are things happening in your life, in the lives of those you care about, whether they be your family, your friends, your fellow service members, if there are things happening in this country that concern you, and if the answer to that is no, then you better start paying attention. Get involved. Yeah. Well, that's a great place to wrap it up. Ooh, you know, we're going to head out on the water, get some more shots. But I have one more question for you. What, what's for the future? What, how does Tulsi want her legacy remembered? And, and what's, what's the? <laughs> I personally, I hate that. I hate that question because <laughs> it's um, a question I ask everyone. <laughs> I know you do. I've heard you ask other people that question, but I hate it uh, because my decisions are not driven by by reflections on what I want my so-called legacy uh, 
to be. Uh, I don't, I honest, I don't think about it. I don't think about it at all. Um, I will continue, I will continue doing what I've done, which is on an ongoing basis, really looking to see how can I, how can I best serve and, um, you know, never take anything off the table, um, and be open to whatever the answer to that may be. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it a lot. Thank uh, you. The photographs have been awesome uh, and the images. And sorry if I've been a, a bit of a nag. In, no, uh, <laughs> my schedule changes. Like, no, no, no it's, it's great. You know, my, my, I never know what my schedule is yeah. almost on any given day. You asked me what I'm doing tomorrow. I know today, but tomorrow it might change. So, no, it's been, it's, I'm so glad that, again, you had the opportunity to come out here. You had the opportunity to experience Hawaii. Uh, I know we've been able to come out and show you a few things. You've gone out and done some adventuring on your own. Uh, I think it's almost perfect that we're going to close out our time together in the ocean because I'm one of those people. Um, I'm one of those people who's more comfortable in water than on land. Mm. I I never wanted to join the Navy though, so um, <laughs> that's uh, good. You know, Thank you. I for know. That. I know. <laughs> Go army, no no offense, <laughs> fellow sailors, <laughs> but uh, I I love I love the ocean. I make it a point to, you know, whenever I'm traveling, especially when I was in Congress, I'd come back and forth, you know, two or three times a month. Literally, I'd come home, drop my bags, and then run down to the ocean, even if just for a quick dip, because um, it's just it's it's special. It's a refresher, and now right before you don't want to date the podcast, but before you start air salt. There you go. <laughs> Get in the water one more time, right? Yes. Remember the foundation. Oh, yes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Schultz. You, I appreciate your pleasure. time. Uh, for those of you listening, uh, don't forget, our legacies are the mission. This has been the Veterans Project Podcast with our founder, Tim Kay. Check us out at www.thevetsproject.com, on Instagram at The Veterans Project, Facebook, The Veterans Project, and Twitter at project underscore veteran. Thanks for listening. And don't forget, our legacies are the mission.